0: This is Box to Box Offside with Rob Gilbert and Michael Edgley. Oh, what a goal! for Chemist warehouse. Great savings every day. And Hoyt's Herbs and it's it's Spices. Changing the mood of food. Absolutely fantastic! Hello
1: and welcome to the very first edition of Box to Box Offside, a brand new podcast where each week we'll talk to a person whose life has been lived through football either domestically or around the world. People who we watch or watched on the pitch or had our heart rates pumping as they describe moments in history. Those who wrote the prose and descriptions of iconic moments and the ones behind the scenes who set the stage for the stars on it. Now, when the lads offered their nominations, there was only one voice we agreed on to kick us off. He's the man whose voice has been the soundtrack of football for nearly 50 years. His mellifluous tones at once soothing as they describe and explain what we're seeing before reaching an improbable crescendo as he finds the perfect description for a moment of artistry and matches the emotion of supporters, both thrilled and despondent with what they've witnessed. I speak of none other than Martin Tyler, and we welcome you to Box to Box Offside, Martin.
2: It's an honour to be your first guest on this new venture, so I hope I can live up to the billing. I suspect you will, Martin. Um, now, it would be remiss
1: of me at this this moment in history um, not to ask of your memories of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth's passing. Um, her uh, her loss has been felt deeply around the world uh, in Australia, Um some of us were, were surprised even to see the government announce a public holiday, but it just fits you, seems like the right thing to do. But in your career, um,
2: you, you would have met Her Majesty over the journey? No, no, I never met Her Majesty. It's a, it's a, a regret, really. Um, I think everybody in the country wanted to meet her, so she didn't have time for us all. Um, obviously, I saw her at various events from a distance from the gantry when she was being presented to teams in various different sports. Um and of course, I do remember when she came to the throne, which has been sort of surprisingly my reaction to it all. I can remember the coronation in 1953. 1953 was a, a wonderful year for uh, the United Kingdom, um, including winning the Ashes, I'm sorry to mention that, which <laughs> was a, a, really, um, a really improbable event in post-war Britain and uh, Everest was climbed, um, and this beautiful young princess ascended to the throne, and none of us, even her, I'm sure, would have imagined that the reign would be so long and so glorious, and Mm -hmm. yeah, we've all shed a tear and um, only pay my greatest respects, Uh, sadly missed. Wonderful to have had 70 years of my life alongside a great monarch, just uh, one subject and mm-hmm. um but i think i speak for for millions of them i think you do and well very well
1: said martin um, and martin, i mentioned off the top you've been calling football for nearly 50 years but you you broadcasting broadcasting career something of a sliding doors moment which we'll get to but i call talking to you some time ago um that the first ball you ever played with was more likely to have been a a Duke's cricket ball when you came from a cricketing family. Um, You still got a picture of a four-year-old Martin with a family friend who also happened to be a member of Sir Donald Bradman's 1948 Invincibles, the league spinning all around a Colin McCool. Um, So this would have been a year after that tour um, and that sobriquet of the the Invincibles, um, funnily enough with your, Uh, football career to come was bookended by the invincibles of uh, of preston north end in the late 19th century and the gunners uh, in the early part of the current one
2: yeah i mean it it was very strange how colin mccool ended up in my grandfather's garden bowling leg spin at me um um, and being kind enough to let me hit one or two but uh, like all good professionals making sure that the um the art that he possessed, the skill that he possessed, was also on show, which left a great impression on me. Um, and yeah, I think being successful in sport and it so much of it is about winning. Um, not losing comes next, I guess. Not all sports uh, allow that. Yes, the win or lose sports. You you're probably much harder to be invincible. But um, I, I think the uh, the Arsenal achievement remains of my broadcasting time, you know, one one of the great achievements. And I always start each season thinking, I wonder whether anyone's going to do it again. And uh, we, we've got a couple still going on that run at the moment who should have played on Saturday, uh, Manchester City and Spurs. But um, obviously for, for reasons everyone knows it didn't take place. Uh, so yeah, it was a it was a great introduction into sport through through my grandfather who who played minor counties cricket for Cheshire, played one first class game at the age of forty eight. Um, if you look it up in the cricket statistics websites, I think he, he got a lot of wickets playing for I think maybe the M C C against Ireland, but it was a first class game. And so I'm I'm Proud that um, down the line from that, my my cricket. Funny enough, I went to the Test match yesterday, uh, which was um, obviously the the cricket authorities allowed the game to go on as a tribute to Her Majesty. And an extraordinary day's play, which we really should have gone to the conclusion of the match, but the regulations worked against it. Um, as we're speaking now, England began ready to go and wrap up the victory, I'm sure. So cricket's always been there in, in my background and in, in my interest, but there was something about football that uh, took me down a different path. I think uh, with cricket, you're very much an individual in a team sport. I, I like the teamness. I've always been part of a team in television Uh, I think it's a very important way to live your life. You're only as strong as your weakest link and make sure you're not the weakest link, you know. Mm -hmm. So um, that's the way it's panned out. Yeah, and it, it, I think i doing
1: some reading um, ahead of our, our chat. Uh, I think your grandfather gave you what was probably your first umbro. Um, uh, cricket didn't win the battle, as you say. But uh, but in the early stages of your life, um, you, you'd, you'd sort of planned to make a, a living out of scoring goals rather than uh, than calling them. Um, uh, the, the story of uh, the call you got from Wilson FC's Alan Humphreys, uh, that's that, that moment where, where you declined because I think you were living in London at the time and and uh, the only guarantee of an income was if you played first football um, but you wouldn't have made money if you played in the reserves
2: so you knocked it back. That's spot on, that sort of knocked it back, I did train there for a month uh, surreptitiously, I was still playing for another club <laughs> I look back on it now I, I'm not sure that it would have been allowed now um, but I, they, they trained on a Tuesday and a Thursday and I trained on a Monday and Wednesday with the club that I played for so I was the fittest probably I've ever been in my life Um, But I didn't quite have that belief that I would be in their first team all the time. And yeah, the the money, which was, of course, shamata, we called it in those days. Mm -hmm. Um, It it was an amateur sport at that level, but players did get paid and some got paid a lot and turned down the chance to go into the football league because they were earning more in brown envelopes in non-league football. Um, But it wasn't a, a, a huge amount, even if I'd been in the first team. And I guess... I often look back on it, and think, if I'd really believed a bit more, maybe I would have done a bit more. But we wouldn't be having this conversation now. So I think we've done okay uh, at this end of it. I think I think it's worked out okay. And if you believe in destiny, and some days I do, and some days I don't, but um, if it was meant to happen, I'm truly grateful that it has happened. Well, we're pretty grateful for it too, Martin, but uh,
1: like at the time, uh, we're, we're talking about the early 70s, uh, none of us know what was going to happen in the future. Soon enough, you're on the dole in Brixton. Um, the only mm. journalism you've written is some copy in your university team's uh, efforts, which I think you, you quoted as saying that, that one of the main motivations was to make sure that your own goals were recorded in posterity. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, I was, then- I,
2: wasn't, I was playing up front for the university, so, uh, yeah, it did get to a slightly wider audience than those that watch the games, yeah.
1: And uh, and then uh, you blagged an interview for a trial um, at The Times uh, and got the job ghostwriting for Jimmy Hill. I know I'm jumping over a key part where um, your
2: girlfriend had given you a tip-off on a new publication, but... Uh, yeah, um- well, was, it wasn't that I did write for The Times, but Jimmy Hill was for a Sunday newspaper mm-hmm. um, once a week Opportunity that I got a couple of years after joining the magazine that my girlfriend got me the interview for. So mm-hmm. that's the chronology of it. But it was um, Jimmy Hill, who was a very famous person in this country. First of all, not so much famous as a footballer, although he, you know, he was a very good footballer. Uh, certainly as a young manager, and then as a television personality, and I mean personality. So to be asked to do something, he was just too busy to write the copy himself. So I would do it, and then he had the. Um, by complete fate really. I saw him one day and he said, why, what are you doing? And I said, "Oh, I've just done a job in television. And he went, you're mad, go home and phone them up and you never know where it will lead you. That was his very phrase. And it's led me to uh, a lot of what we're talking about today. So I did yes. go home and I did phone up and I did get the jobs, but it wasn't yes. as a commentator. It was as a behind the scenes um, production assistant, but my football knowledge that I've been coached and played helped a lot. I had no other real experience of it. So I managed Mm. to get through uh, those first early months. And then I missed not being out at a football ground. So Mm. the only way to get out to the ground was actually to um, try and find a job in a football stadium on a regular basis. And you know what that job has, has become.
1: And it started off with I think a cassette uh, recorder uh, at Highbury. You, you went to uh, what was a two all drawer, uh, um, oh. and um, and and you put, you brought it back for for your your match director uh, at Southern Television at the time, and he said, look, that doesn't sound too bad. Go back and and try it again, and um, and and that then led to. I think you overheard a conversation about an opportunity that might have uh, 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 come up for a, uh, a commentary position
2: with... Um, with. Well, that, a- that's yeah. where Southern Television came in, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the, if you like, the trial run was um, at London Weekend Television where I was working mm-hmm. on their football output as a behind-the-scenes person. Um, but I'd done these couple of tests... For myself, really. There was no job offer or anything. I just had a couple of um, Saturdays off and it was a good excuse to get to see the game, to be honest here, with you. And then Southern Television rang up. The guy who played the cassettes too. they rang him up and said, we need a commentator for one game, one game only. We can't offer anybody anything in terms of contract. Do you know anybody who could just fill in for one game? Um, and that one game became a few more. Manchester City are still alive here. Balotelli, Aguero. Two goals in added time for Manchester City to snatch the title away from Manchester United.
3: The Premier League years, Martin, where you're so synonymous as a, as a voice there. Can you take take us back to about the time that that this was all coming together? Um, how were you approached about, about the job at, at Sky? How much did you know about their plans for the broadcasting and you know, looking back now, did you did you think back then? Did, did you have even a sense of how big it was all going to turn out to be?
2: Well, to answer the last point first, no, I certainly didn't. I don't think any of us did. Um, what had happened is I'd not gone directly to Sky. I joined a, a different organisation. This is the early attempts in in the UK to get satellite television um, off the ground, literally off the ground with the dishes. And I joined a company called British Satellite Broadcasting with uh, some of my colleagues who later we moved to Sky because Sky took us over. It was very uncertain, actually. The whole thing was uncertain. Um, I definitely wasn't first choice to go into the satellite television industry. A lot of more experienced commentators, though I was reasonably experienced at that time. I, I look back on that and think I'd had 16, 17 years of broadcasting. So I was probably not too old and just experienced enough, I sort of ticked that particular box at that particular time. So that was, that's the accident of life, really. Um, and um, so I went into satellite broadcasting with no Premier League, 1990, um, and then Sky took over the company um, because they were winning the battle with the dishes. Uh, they had them more... Workable system as far as the public was concerned, they took over the company officially. I think in early 1991, but we were told in, in November 1990. I remember all very well because it was very uncertain times. And then that had happened, and a year later, the Premier League came out not of nowhere because these discussions had been going on through the 80s, I think. Um, but what we didn't know, obviously, and couldn't anticipate, was that Sky got the deal, and. Um, a case of being in the right place at the right time, really. Yeah, it was, a, I remember the day I was doing something, I was, actually it was 1992, it was pre-Euro 92. I was doing some preparation stuff in a in a sound suite in, in the centre of London, and I got a message, you've got to ring your boss. And it was David Hill, who is well-known in Australian broadcasting circles, mm. who called me in, and a couple of others as well, and said, well, we've got this now, what are we going to do? How are we going to do it? Um, and one or two decisions were made that day, but it came around very quickly, and we were sent forth, and happily we were sent forth, and the business multiplied.
3: Sky obviously um, really pioneered how the game was covered overall. Martin, you're a, you're a big part of that with with uh, the likes of, of Andy Gray and the others back then, really bringing additional... Um, Analysis of the game pre-match and post-match, and I think that broadcasters around the world have looked at that and gone, um, you know, what a, you know, this is the way that sport needs to be covered now. What are your, your reflections on just how innovative um, that time was, and where you and the team managed to take? take the art of covering football matches during that time?
2: I think the main point was that everybody who was brought in to work on the Premier League loved football as much as the people that you know were on the Premier League. The sound men, uh, the directors, the cameramen, they were all football fans and some of them as almost as obsessive as the, as, as the people on screen, you know. And we get challenged after games by the cameraman. Was say, why did you say that? We well, don't you think this. And, um, and that was a big change because in in general coverage of football in England, uh, it had been done in highlight form. No one was employed sort of full time to do it. The cameraman might have been working on a soap opera in the week, and then they come and do a football match on a Saturday afternoon. And obviously, they didn't have the depth of knowledge. They didn't have the ability to find the kind of shots. Even some of the directors weren't real at football freaks if you like and um, so um, we you know we we got a group of like-minded people together and I think that elevated the standards straight away it was an obvious it was like assigning better players for a football team really because they they, they had to be better because they they wanted to do football it wasn't just a I'm a professional cameraman I'll do what comes along they're, they're very talented guys but they weren't the specialists so we became a team of specialists and I think the rest sort of fell into place we love it we still love doing it everybody i work with loves doing it and it's um it's that's and i i think that message went around to other broadcasting organizations around the world that you had to have people who knew who knew their stuff really
3: the role of the commentator despite all of this change hasn't necessarily changed over time it's a person with a microphone whose job it is to tell people what's happening and add add to the add to the story but what what has changed in that if anything is it the the people that you're with you know the sitting alongside you um, is it the amount of games that you're now having to cover I dare say now that even in a Post-pandemic period, your ability to commentate on games and the volume of games you can do must have changed quite dramatically.
2: I always say that nothing's changed because basically, I I identify the players. I hold the same, not exactly the same, but the same piece of kit—the lip mic, which I think everybody who follows sport has seen a picture of a commentator where you've got a bar on top of this thing that you hold grasping your hand and hold the bar up against you. So you're speaking into something that compresses the sound and also stops the ancillary sound breaking in and uh, drowning the voice of the commentator. So I think the job is very similar. Um, of course, my first game, I think we had four cameras. Now, if we have 24, it seems not quite enough. Um, the, uh, the game itself has changed a little bit because I think better pitches, um, uh, all, all the all the advantages that make the fans experience going to the match is that much greater i think that that's also it's become a, a much more commercial entity i don't think football ever maximized its uh, commercial potential before the premier League um so, but yeah there, there are differences you're right but i i had co- co-commentators in the late 1970s when I was working on some live games for ITV, uh, and certainly at the '82 World Cup, uh, I worked with Jack Charlton and Ian St John, two great people, sadly no longer with us. And they, um, so that was quite similar to having my my commentary um, sidekicks, and it was very much done that way with with two guys really talking to to, to um, Instruct and and inform and hopefully a bit entertain. So, I don't think it's changed too much. I think I do I do the same thing. Yeah, there's much more before. There's much more afterwards. There are more graphics. There are more commercial entities like promoting other shows that we didn't ever do before. But actually. If I come away having done 100% identification in the game and got the score right, I'm doing what I'm there to do. So um, ho- hopefully uh, it's the other things that have changed. But for commentary, it, it is just feeling the game, smelling the fixture and trying to trying to get it right. Of course, you can't get it right. It's, it's an impossible job to do perfectly because it's unscripted. Um, three or four times a season, I think I got close but I've never done the perfect one. Les, being a European, and, and being of um, we're sim- similar ages, so I was able to, I was fascinated about his background, fascinated. Growing up uh, in the 50s, in Europe, Hungary, where VT and Puskas and the team that we call them the 6-3 team here because they came to Wembley and beat England 6-3 and England were the country that taught the world the game and this was our, you know, I was eight years old, Les the same, and uh, you know, both had a big impact on our lives so we didn't obviously know each other for many years afterwards. So Les's sense of history for the game was word perfect. Johnny Warren, obviously from the 74 squad, playing pedigree, World Cup pedigree, Like Les, extremely serious about his football, particularly about the way the game was played. Um, He could be quite damning to some some of the England teams that we've seen over the years we worked together. Kick and rush was uh, an expression that he he would reach for quite early. And I was always trying to defend some of the European styles. He loved South American football, Johnny. He loved to see the game played, passing that's how he was and, and but very very seriously minded about it. good sense of humor but we were working you know we were there to work and although we were you know we we um, we had a lot of fun doing it the fun came from doing the job
0: properly my questions which are with a very much an Australian lens and I just want to play you my very first memories of you on Australian TV let's just listen have a listen to this and I want to get I want to get your reaction Yankos got up his sleeve this time. It's a great goal! Charlie
2: Yankos! Oh! His last was totally deceived.
0: Well, that was um, your call of Charlie Yankos in 1988 when you were uh, employed, I think, uh, at that point in time by ABC, just before you uh, had the opportunity to SBS. but... What was your reaction of flying out to the Antipodes and seeing the um, wonderful um, Bicentennial Cup, which was a great moment for Australian football, but what are your memories of that whole experience?
2: Um, very, very, very detailed memories. First and foremost, um, it looked as though I wouldn't be let in. Um, there were all sorts of issues with the Australian Embassy where I spent more time than I actually had time to give, trying to get the right kind of visa to get in. Um, And it got to the point where I very nearly couldn't come. So, But happily, that was ironed out right at the very last. I was away doing the European Championship um, for ITV in the weeks leading up to it. I was only home for about three or four days before we as a family went my wife and my eight-month-old son (laughs) that was we have family in in australia so it was an opportunity but i wouldn't recommend taking a toddler well not even a toddler just a baby uh, all that way (laughs) Um, my wife cried going to the airport because she thought we were mad um, but it all worked out wonderfully well the tournament was fantastic the hospitality was fantastic Um, it remains my only ever trip to australia and afterwards, I went to New Zealand where my cricketing friend, Jeff Howarth, who um, was my flatmate and had become New Zealand's test captain, he um, showed all three of us great hospitality. We had, we had a wonderful time. And um, the football was very interesting. And, and of course, Charlie Ankos became the star of the show. So the, the, I remember arriving and I think we landed at about sort of 10 o'clock on a Thursday morning. And the only training session I could see... Eddie Thompson the late Eddie Thompson was very helpful to me um uh, was about four o'clock in the afternoon that afternoon of course I've come from um England where it was getting dark at 10 p.m uh, to the winter in Australia where it was getting dark at four um I sort of peered, then there were about 25 players in the in the soccer Ridge squad and I was trying to learn who they were I knew John Cosmina was the only one I knew because he played in England and And this sort of it was like a a strange movie. (laughs) I was looking in the dark in poor floodlights and trying to assimilate all this information. Having had no sleep for the last forty-eight hours, so um, but it got a lot better after that, and I I had a great time. So, and of course, I met um, in the Parramatta Stadium. I met uh, Dominic Galati of of SBS, and that really was, um, I guess, the great legacy personally from that particular trip.
0: Well, that's a good segue. I mean, um, it's been much documented that you met uh, Dominic in the steelwell and he said to you, how about you come and work with SBS? And I think in the 19, uh, or the next World Cup, you did uh, 39 matches, uh, your voice was broadcast in Australia. So that is um been well documented at, at, at your time at SBS. But I want to uh, delve into your personal uh, interactions with the great, uh, late Johnny Warren and Les Murray. Um, I... Um, I just wanted to have a very specific question, whether in your time at World Cups or talking to these guys, um, were you aware of the the challenges that faced Australian football in Australia in the local market, uh, being a third or fourth tier sport Mm -hmm. up against the big NRL and AFL? Were you aware of the, uh, the, the nuances of the challenges of Australian football? And did Les and Johnny talk about that with you and did you get an appreciation for what Les has documented so beautifully in his books, the mission that he was on, which was to educate uh, the wider public about the wonderful global world game?
2: Well, yes, 100%. Um, I spent quite a lot of time in the 70s in my sort of holiday time um, going to the USA and, and seeing the NASL as it was then. Struggle to try and get a grip on the sporting consciousness of a a big sporting country, Uh, and so I had some experience of of what Australia was going through and the fight that Les and Johnny had to make, and were were up for. And SBS played an enormous part in this, giving them the platform to um, to evangelise about the World Game. You know, so um, yeah, we talked a lot about it. I've always believed, and this is the message I would try to give to them, there's this room for all, you know. It's not about trying to be number one, it's trying to be the best that you can be and let's see what happens, you know. And the organisation at times of, of the, the league in, in Australia has been difficult to uh, align that with a, a crusade to try and bring more and more um, Uh, spectators and and athletes into into our game as we called it um not our game but everybody's game but the game the world game and i suppose that's where the sense of competition really really kicks in it does happen in the media i can remember in 2018 being put on hold by a a radio station because of um the uh, aussie rules results so there was a story coming in and i'm thinking, I'm at the World Cup. But they were right. That was their editorial call. I'm 100% sure they were right. And I waited patiently. But there was a slight tinge of, I suppose, you know, come on. But but I knew like, the background of Johnny and Les had given me was um, very clear cut, really. So I'm in no position, really, to judge how that particular... Um, storyline is developing now in in 2022 i might be in in three months time when i've done a world cup for sbs and 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 hopefully you know in a different time zone a different time of the year but where it's winter for us it's summer for you so there's another challenges whether people will watch more i don't know we'll have to find out they will have views on that i know i'm doing certain commentary kickoff times to align with the um peak time viewing of the of the competition. So so we'll see. But they were wonderful people. Uh a privilege to know them. Very professional. Uh, very dedicated to their sport, very dedicated to their broadcasting. Um and Leslie's voice still just amazing. His detail, those city centre things he did in all the World Cups were just just heaven to listen to really and beautiful to watch as well very well shot by by the australian cameraman so we um um yeah we we had a great time together and and it's never been the same being uh on sbs duty since we've lost them back
0: yeah absolutely and my <clears throat> i spent a lot of time with them and my memories of them were there was plenty of walking we did lots of walking and talking. Um, <laughs> and there was um, I, coffee,
2: a lot of coffee drunk, a lot of yes, cappuccino. Lot of coffee.
0: Um, <laughs> and um, I'm sure now that they're gone, we can reflect on this too. There was plenty of um, waving away the cigarette smoke. There was plenty of smoking going on, um, but also Les's pronunciation. And yeah. um, you must have had some interesting discussions with Les about pronunciation of players' names because, um, you know, Les with his um, – SBS had on would try and get them right all the time but but you know what a player is called um in his home country versus around the world sometimes it's different things so did you get any any discussions with Liz about how we should say this player's name or that oh. Stacks,
2: stacks, because we, we we were very similar, really. It was trying to convince the public that we were right that was probably more difficult. Um, yeah, I mean, in, even now, I mean, uh, one of the things that we will do, in, 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 not just in Leslie's memory, but in proper professional broadcasting, we will go through... What we think the the players should be called, and and um, in the Premier League, and and I think for the European Championship, I'm not sure that it was done for the last World Cup. Some some um, clever um, uh, sports publications put out their own list of pronunciations, or their own. You can get get the files, uh, the audio files online, um, and the commentators all try and you know follow the the same message, but it's not always easy. Um, and and there will be people who are listening to this saying, "Yeah, but he says this, and I think it's this." And really, all you can do is say, "Well, this is what I'm going to call him," and and unless um, proved otherwise, if if the player, sometimes the player will say, "I don't mind what you what, what, how you pronounce my name." Others will say, "Well, they've changed their mind." I mean, Paolo Wanchope for about a month was Paolo Wanchope. I'll never forget that because on both occasions, the beginning and the end, I was. Uh, he came to me and said, no, I want you to change back to one Shop now. Uh, and, uh, having ch- told me that th- th- his mum has said it should be this. Um, so we try. Um, yeah, it's, it's probably a bit more of an issue for us in the media than it is for the listeners and the viewers, I think. so, But it will be high on the agenda in World Cup 2022 preparation. I can promise you that.
0: I oh, certainly will. Now, my last question before Rob winds up this wonderful uh, trip down Mary Lane with you, Martin. We've absolutely loved it, talking about your relationship with Australia and uh, and so forth. Now, the Australian audience, we'd like to claim you as our own, but I know you've only been out here once in 1998. We've got, to, we've got to sort that out, Rob. We're going to get Martin back at some point, I'm sure, about that. But but tell me, do you think much about the Australian audience? Do you think about um, how significant your calls of of um, big events in football have been resonating in Australia. I know uh, that little grab I played you of Charlie Ankos. I-, I play that because a good friend of mine who was a teammate of Charlie Ankos has that as his ringtone. So when Charlie rings him and he calls him a lot, that pops up. You know. Um, so I just wanted to know: Do you think about the Australian audience, and do you know? how much you're loved here in Australia?
2: Well, it's very kind of you to say that. I, I, I don't think that, And not because of, out of lack of respect. I, I just try to do the best for each particular game. And, and I've always believed that if one person listens or 20 million people listen, it's got to be treated with the same respect. So I'm sharing my love of football with those who... who I'm not say a force to do it, but I'm the one on the air. They can always turn the sound down if they don't like it. They, they, um, um, but I, I just try to be fair. To be fair to the players, to be fair to respect the sport. To try and be judgmental when it's required. I maybe at times accentuate the positive, but I don't eliminate the negative. The negative has to be dealt with as well. Uh, I just try my best every time to to transmit what I'm seeing um, that is relevant. I think that's the the significant part about it. You can waste words. Um, I try not to do that. Um, I don't script it. I I get very upset when people say, oh, you must have thought of that three weeks ago or something like that. Crazy things pop into my head sometimes. I'm I'm a victim of... Liking a pun, I do apologize for that because <laughs> if I could, if one comes up, there was a story uh, one the other day, but I, it was totally off the top of my head. Uh, Arsenal scored their tenth goal in a row with a left-footed finish, and Bukayo Saka scored at Old Trafford. So I said after the goal and all, I said, I said I've got a footnote for you, and 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 it was about a left foot. So <laughs> I. I apologise for that. If it if it <laughs> if it was too too hammy, too cheesy, but it was straight off the top of my head. <laughs> um, so no, I this place for fun. Um, light and shade as the uh, one famous commentator told me. Brian Moore over here. Light and shade. Love the game, and enjoy yourself. Uh, if I don't enjoy it, I mean, I'm well, I'm well into added time in my career. Don't. Mm. That's not, beat around the book beat around the bush um but i i still i still love doing it i can still climb the steps of the gantry and that's sometimes quite a challenge but um while i can still do that and, and people say uh, come again uh, the end of my first commentary that one you referred to earlier right at the beginning of this chat at the end of the um, end of the day a very testing day for me um There's an old joke, you could do two commentaries in one day, your first and your last. Um, But the producer said to me, we've got another one coming up in a couple of weeks. We'd like you to do that. And from that moment onwards, people have been saying, we've got another one or two in a few weeks. And I'll have 20-odd coming up in November and December, and I hope the kind things you said at the start of this question uh, still apply. Martin, they certainly
1: will. And that man, um, I think his name was Stephen Wade, who did invite you back for the second time, was mm-hmm. a decorated uh, a television entertainment production person who, uh, in his own laconic style, um, saw some incredible talent and uh and over the years since we've been the beneficiaries of it, and uh, uh, we we really really are grateful that you've um, you've taken the time. When we started this podcast back in the 2015-16 season, the famous season of the the Leicester City Foxes, uh, uh, we made a collective decision that the soundtrack of our show needed to be a soundtrack of uh, of only one voice, and that was yours. And we played your voice uh, with our show for three hundred and fifty five episodes, mate. And, uh, and and we're so um, appreciative that you've taken the time to, to have a, a chat to us when you get invited to do so many of these and you do it with uh, with dignity and, uh, and, and style every single time.
2: Well, it's very kind of you to say that. I, I always love talking about football. I'm not so good at talking about myself, but uh, I, I hope it's fitted the bill today. It certainly has. Well, to
1: uh, our listeners out there, we hope you uh, enjoyed the first edition of Box to Box Offside with the great Martin Tyler. Um, ho- hopefully this will set the agenda for what we're trying to achieve uh, with this uh, particular podcast, to tell the stories of, uh, of people in Australia and around the world whose life has been lived through the lens of football. And uh, we really do uh, hope you come back and, uh, and enjoy it in the future. Uh, make sure you subscribe to Box to Box wherever you get your podcasts. Tweet us. At Box to Box NTS and follow us on Twitter. We'll start sharing your feedback on the show soon. Like us on Facebook and make sure you join us next week when we go from one end of the pitch to the other in the world game.